Section one of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one. Introduction. How one becomes an alien. Some persons are, of course, born Germans. Some achieve citizenship of that great and good nation. Others, again, have the honour thrust upon them. And one fine day I found myself in the last category of all, with no reluctance but through no fault of my own, and I took to my new position quite kindly. Even some earth-shaking ceremonies through which I, in common with my nation of origin, had lately passed, did not awaken in me any unpleasant sense of what I was forfeiting in the exchange. King George was no king of mine, though he was doubtless to prove a very agreeable king to live under. So it appeared to me on that particular day in June, as I sat at ease on a deal bench covered with red bays built right under the statue of Disraeli, another alien, whom one half of the English nation at least regards as eminently desirable, and surveyed the new King of England's acclaimed and gracious progress through the capital of his lieges. Everything all round me was fairly, oddly, almost Germanly managed and that reminded me of the folk-tale now quite embedded in the English popular consciousness of the oysters and the carpenters. The white roads shone in the sun, the hoardings were painted in chaste, linear, stenciled patterns, the usually dirty buildings above, where no hoardings could reach, seemed polished. But King George's police had contrived to arrange matters so beautifully they had taken such care that everybody should see the procession in safety, that in the end there was hardly anybody there to see it. The whole thing was a triumph of order. But where were the ordered? The streets were cleared for the people, who were cleared away. Just a week before the ceremony of the coronation, I had marched along with 40,000 English women along the streets of this alien capital, clamouring peacefully constitutionally for the gift of the vote, and my legs still ached at the mere thought of those five hours' stringent exercise. But I now realised suddenly the fact that, when the vote was won, I, as an alien, would never walk on those same legs to the pole along with my fellow workers, for I had chosen to belong to a country where women do not even dream of emancipation, a country where the wife's income, though not her capital, belongs to her husband, and where that husband may divorce her willy-nilly, if she should even so much as insist on wearing colours that happen to jar on him. I brooded over all the privileges which I had forgone as I sat appropriately enough on the English foreign office seats among other desirable aliens, or as some people would prefer to phrase it with John Ruskin among, quote, persons of a certain order in the abyss. For cheap patriotism may run to such forms of ignorant depreciation. I remember the noble rage of the French father of a friend of mine who had married an Englishman, as he recounted to me long afterwards his son-in-law's grudging appreciation of papa, very intelligent for an Englishman. Shortly before he had informed me that clever was the word for human beings, but that intelligent could only be used of animals. 
yet these good people collected with me on the foreign office stand were mostly foreign all of them well dressed and presumably quite intelligent they were by no means downhearted or in the least out of it for salutes were continually passing between the un-english occupants of these benches and the equally un-english occupants of the state carriages i saw my grand duke the boss of my particular province drive by with his grand duchess Footnote. my august sovereign ernst ludwig großherzog von hessen darmstadt und bei rhein was i don't know why the only sovereign prince present at the coronation of king george v it is that is to say considered a solecism to allow any crowned sovereign to be present at this ceremony because he must take precedence of the british sovereign as yet uncrowned why therefore one of the grand dukes of hessen darmstadt should have been present i do not know for certainly they do not take rank below any of the other confederate princes of the german empire j l f m h readers note the initials j l f m h at the end of the footnotes refer to joseph leopold the name given by the author to her partner followed by the initials of his actual name ford maddox heffer in footnote i saw my grand duke the boss of my particular province drive by with his grand duchess in her own principality so i am told by joseph leopold his name is a name of awe here he is apt to get casually designated as a german princeling or some serenity or other but he is certainly excessively intelligent and his grand duchess as narrow and conventional as the most straight-laced duchess of the dukeries well moreover she of hessen darmstadt has a good deal more control of les moeurs in her department and possibility of asserting her wishes in fact she has the powers of a queen consort in the distance did i but raise my eyes i could see the chimneys of my embassy and in the road below smart officers of my nationality rode abreast wearing the handsome uniform of prussia but thank god i am advised to thank god i need not call myself a prussian though perforce the kaiser a sacred prussian has constituted himself my first warlord all this added immensely to the significance of the procession i found it hardly possible to be quite frivolous in the face of the tremendous volt fast that i have made the signs the symptoms of it were all in the air on that english fete day it remains intangible mostly made up of symbols and change of symbols but it gives one to think artists are supposed to have less sense of nationality less patriotism if you like to put it so than other people and i hope i am an artist anything to excuse my lack of sense of empire i am sure i should duly say in a crisis my country right or wrong and i am glad to think that i did not flaunt my pro boredom during the war any more than i would choose to swap horses in the middle of the stream but in times of peace i am only too ready to say that my country is in the wrong and i do not think that the germans therefore got a very good bargain in me yet my tedescan sympathies were fairly developed 
the process was begun by my father and mother with prophetic insight perhaps from my earliest years german nurses cuffed me and hushed me in my wicked and virtuous moods respectively till i knew their language a good deal better than my own and in order to be respected and duly carried out had to be given to me in german a german nurse from paderborn called milly tried to implant in me and my sisters i fancy the first glimmerings of that meticulous attention to detail that respect for the printed word that habit of patient martyrdom to authority which i consider distinguishes milly's fellow-countrymen and women even when later i had a french nurse she was only a german in disguise and had been turned out of paris sent away by the last train as a spy at the beginning of the siege my germanhood was obviously fate the cook was in the habit of sending up three lightly boiled eggs for the nursery breakfast Milly then arranged my two sisters and myself in a row at stated distances from where she sat in the middle with her spoon like a nest full of young ravens or a posse of young calves this careful woman fed us she took the three eggs seriatim putting a portion into each little open mouth in rotation beginning with the eldest it was as much as our places were worth to murmur and that is how now that i have come to years of discretion i understand why the german system of state insurance which is the model for the one that has been set up amid tears in england came to be so patiently tolerated years ago in germany for in so slight a matter as the degustation of three eggs three free-born english children were aligned tabulated fitted into system and we rebelled far less than i have seen a troop of calves do fed in the same arbitrary way on pails full of skim milk once and once only at the age of four i rebelled against some other of milly's petty laws of the nursery i called her a nasty cat germans hate cats and milly felt it deeply but no nursery rights or privilege equally systematized they were too were mine until at the end of three days i begged milly's august pardon nowadays i should not hesitate so long as that especially with a german for as often as i come right up against this highly organized and quite arbitrary system do i realize that in willing or even sulky subordination lies the german strength and in the studied ignoring of the claims of the unit we are to read the sense of citizenship in england every man's house is and must remain his castle where he may practise any abomination he pleases even child torture so long as screams are not heard outside and thus warrant an officer of the spcc in entering the roadway is also free to all and the soil and gravel which is on it witness the following illustration I lived when in London on a hill that is the curse of horses in the winter months. A reluctant vestry, much plagued of its more philanthropic representatives, was at last persuaded to dump down some sand in the slipperiest places for the use of considerate carters. A German vestry would do this as a matter of course, 
and no german child would be so lost to all civic feeling as to make these heaps of sand into a jumping ground in england it was beaten in throughout the whole day by hundreds of little feet and trodden into a hard unmalleable crust so that the wagoners in their need were too lazy to break it up to scatter under the labouring hoofs of their horses besides they had no spades they would have had spades in germany and no german policeman would in the first instance have allowed children to make havoc of these heaps in germany germans seem to me to think of everything to know everything collectively and yet to trust no single person individually to do either on the front of every post-box these alwissend warn themselves to look carefully before posting a letter to see whether it bears a stamp or not and whether the sender is even omitted to put the address await in one of the tiniest of station waiting-rooms represents amusement coupled with instruction you can learn your duties as a travelling showman also how many live lions you are allowed to travel with to a given spot do many people want to travel with dead ones you may learn that it is forbidden to give theatrical performances at all in a waiting-room place bicycles on the refreshment-room tables or carry trees across the line the german character reminds me of the brown bread ice once fashionable as a ball supper refreshment poetry and prose are in it most oddly commingled the romantic side of my own nature seems to me to derive from and to be fed by an early and concentrated study of the great kinder und hausmärchen of the brothers grimm i remember the winter's evening when the book was first brought into our nursery the leaping firelight the strange patterns made by the high nursery fender on the ceiling the proud pleased face of milly the first story that was read to us out of that ugly red and gold and blue volume published by edmund routledge was the woodcutter's child and from that moment jack the giant killer even beauty and the beast were forgotten savage unromantic incomplete they now seemed on the second night we read the weirdest story of all not a child's story by any means oh if i could but shiver it was horrible grotesque up to the final incident when the beautiful high-born princess pours the pailful of little fishes down the naked back of the man who shivered then and not till then yet we children found romance in it found dim unearthly terrors that made us fall silent and our eyes grow round so that after that night the story was tabooed by our elders who would never consent to read it aloud to us again milly herself said it was vulgar as one grew older one was promoted to the study of the more actual legendary conte of the deutsche sagen this the second collection of the brothers grimm concerns itself more with certain semi-historical personages craft this count that who when at home and as one might say thoroughly domesticated represent really that superior thief called in german legend the robber baron it is really he who 
twice a day is in the habit of descending from his schloss on the steep to rob the merchant whom he is able to perceive from his fastness travelling timorously along the valley below it is also he who on pleasure bent not business descends to hunt to fish to flirt with the nixes of the stream or with some snaky melusine or lady of the fountain great families so grimm says have sprung from such alliances grimm tells us also of the humble sort of nix who goes to market fondly hoping to pass her pretty self off for a proper german mädchen she is alas soon recognised by the water that drips from the corner of her apron the church the schloss the stream the little self-contained dwarf with its houses drawn up close for company figure in all the tales and so do the deep dark puzzling woods that lie so near into which children may stray and whence wild beasts issue of which nothing is known and all is feared i have never seen woods like those of germany where one hears the screech of the wildcat in the daytime as the light grows lower where the very toadstools have an unnatural colour and the fairy plant clusters on every bough do not Eurinda and Eurwingle still wander there looking for fern-seed? And does not the crooked, twisted witch, jealous of so much happiness, lurk and peer, desirous to turn each young lover into a bird, and add him then and there to the collection of birds of all sorts in cages that fill her cottage? The value of birds in Germany is made apparent in nearly every story. They say that one reason why Germans more or less detest the French is because that fervently gastronomic nation prefers little birds simmering in the pot to little birds singing in cages. And that is also why there are so few cats in Germany. I have seen them now, those woods, those streams, those castles that I used as a little child to read about, carried away, entranced, sitting in the hard window-seat overlooking a stony, regular London street. And I was quite ready for that summer morning about seven, when, rising from my berth uncalled alone, I leapt to the little window of my cabin on the Rhine-boat and saw in the golden morning light a panorama slowly passing before my eyes that beggared my English dreams of Thames and Ouse. It seemed as if this wonderful sight, like a picture hung on a wall in a lonely gallery, had waited, calm, indifferent, careless of its effect, through all the years for the unexpectant eyes of me and my like to rest upon. It was one long, fair procession of castled heights, each tipped with its little heap of broken stones that once meant so much, clad in the soft foliage masking the proud decay underneath, as it were a cloak of green mantling the ragged fireplaces and deficient cornerstones of the broken robber stronghold the charitable green led the eye of the beholder gently away and down to the edge of the water that ran along evenly its great dark dull flow delving into the scarped banks with light ripples breaking up the darkness near the middle whereon i was borne slowly along in my quiet sleeping boat Nobody minded, nobody seemed to wait but I. We were all on our way to Mainz, on business or pleasure intent. We were all Germans, 
the proud possessors of this unique waterway. Yet to one so recently enrolled in these civic benefits as I, it was a sight for tears in its gentle, passionless dignity. This view that was vouchsafed to me out of my little square porthole, straight on to romance. For the Rhine is surely the most romantic thing in the world. The Rhine has everything. It is wide. It has cliffs on both sides, like a canyon. And it is so deep, so dreadfully, awfully deep all the time. And there are holes deeper still that are the dungeons of the Lorelei. The full, broad smile of its treacherous shallows masks them. Little innocent ripples only betray the death that attends the lure of the sweet song wafted over the water. And though the authorities have for utilitarian purposes blasted away the foot of her rock, the Lorelei is still there and Germans know it well. For Heine's lyric enshrined her in the German consciousness forever. Hats go off as we pass the jutting promontory whence by her voice she once charmed the hapless fisherman to his doom and if in these modern days she no longer sings her song for herself it is sung for her in full and lusty yet soft chorale by the sons and daughters of heine's germany we fare on the great cliffs on both sides of the stream with their full rows of vines crawling up to the summit are hung before our eyes like an oppressive dream curtain right back on the tops of the hills out of our sight who drift on the stream below stretch the woods of the eiffel one of the great silent forests of germany horribly deadly still they are devoid of the prattle of birds undisturbed in their sinister peace the whole day long except for the rustle of the innocent deer and the more violent crash of the wild boars plunging through the thickets on their way to drink the woods says joseph leopold are silent because there are hardly any birds another reason for the value set on them there is not enough water for these little creatures of which germans are so passionately fond and it is a long way to fly down to the rhine for every mouthful of moisture yes a bird is a creature around which the popular imagination readily fastens. Back, back they stretch, these terrible, mysterious, unblessed wildernesses. Terrible, for all the beasts of legend may and do lurk in their secret recesses. And the stalwart forester in his lovely green and grey uniform with his distant air of undefined yet limitless authority is king. Footnote. This official, who may be royal, imperial, royal, princely, or merely the officer of a private domain, as who should say a private policeman, leads at times a life of sufficient danger, though witches may be absent from the vast tracts of forest over which he rules. The German poacher and the German wood-thief, who will chop down and carry off in a night from one to ten fir-trees, or half as many wild boars or fallow-deer, is a person far more bloodthirsty and determined than any of his confreres of the English woodlands, even near the large manufacturing towns. It is a pretty comment upon the predilection displayed by our author, in common with every other writer upon German characteristics, for enlarging on the orderliness and respect for law 
that she imagines herself to perceive in the German nation, that the percentage of crimes of violence is higher than any other country in the world, with the sole exception of the United States, that Germany is the most heavily policed nation in the world, the forty per cent of the crimes of violence are committed against policemen, foresters, postmen, who are robbed and murdered in the solitary and romantic woodlands with a lamentable frequency, and, by an odd collocation of psychology, against firemen. The fireman in Germany is almost as detested as the policeman. I can only imagine because he is a state official wearing a uniform. When a village near St. Gorshausen was being burned to the ground, I saw the peasant inhabitants turn out in a body and stone the firemen that came galloping up along the Rhine. It was true that this was attributable rather to a desire to collect the insurance money than to any immediate dislike of the firemen, but such a proceeding cannot be held to argue any strong respect for either law or order. The fact is that every non-official German detests or despises every German official, insofar as his office is concerned, of course, in varying degrees. He abides by laws and regulations, because he will be fined with unerring swiftness, or imprisoned after a trial of excruciating slowness, if he breaks the one or neglects the other. He is, in fact, not so much law-abiding as kept under by laws. J.L. F.M.H. End footnote. And the stalwart forester in his lovely green and grey uniform, with his distant air of undefined yet limitless authority, is king. Whom and what does he not govern? Beasts, of course, and who knows what undisciplined humanity, what savage robbers and ladies, like Schinderhannes, their picturesque accomplice, he may not meet in his day-long wanderings. In this silence, this sameness and vastness, one has a feeling that anything, everything might happen, that the mild, blue-eyed woodcutters and charcoal burners, of whom you may meet a sample or two in the course of a long day's walk, may have grown strangely morbid in this perverting solitude, and be disposed to make a bad use of their unsermoned liberty. And the great, populous, indifferent waterway glides through these secret and potential mysteries, majestically ignoring all, save what comes to meet it, the wild, thirsty creatures that brush and trample down to the bank for water, the staple of their life. But the stream has nothing to do with the backwoods. It threads languidly the countries of enchantment, avoiding, as it were, the thought and oppression of them. It must pass on its way to the noisy towns of commerce beyond, through this valley of Apollyon, this sinister passage commanded by the two portals, the rock of Drachenfels on the one side and Rodanseg on the other. Entering here, it passes for a space out of the modern world. Even the railway, running continually like a covert insult under either bank, hardly hints modernity. It cannot seriously affect a flow so big, so black, so simple, and so deep down in its bed. The strong, sane morning light only seems to touch the crests of the mountain walls that enclose that river bed, these vast mounds of closely packed leaves tipped with castles that hang over it. Old, grey, helpless and forlorn, the banks look under the glare of the truculent virile shafts of gold 
that are fostering and ripening the vine screens minute by minute. And at night we wandered along the white, ghostly, vine-bordered road by Osmanshausen, desiring deeply to see the fox whose smell bereath him actually at his thievish work among the vines. The trains rushing along under the opposite bank looked like worms, the worm of legend, or like rattlesnakes with tails of gold. One is almost glad when they have passed, and once more all is quiet, and the ripple of the Rhine assumes again its own predominance, and the black bank swoops in as before. It is not for very long. There is a line on both sides of the Rhine, and very soon on the side where one is walking, one is confronted by a dusky mass that seems to have a kind of life, advancing with its bulldog breast and body of lighted carriages. It too passes, rattling by complacently, and the scent of the fox that has surely lain there on this patch of grass by the roadside all night comes out strongly again. And so, after three lazy days of sun and wind and soothing ripple, I go gliding into the country of my adoption, insinuating myself by these peaceful methods of penetration. I am born past Bopart, where sundry squares of linen are waved by charming relations out of villa windows to welcome the desirable alien. At Rennes, with its terrace and ruined tower where a holy Roman emperor once met his lieges, more charming German relations. I get off the boat there for a moment and walk straight into the village Kermess now in full swing, and I am heartily invited to dance by a handsome compatriot in full costume. But these few alightings on German soil are the merest taking of season. During these five days or so I am at home not in Germany but upon the steamer. I sleep on it, I eat on it, I travel on it. And it is only during the halts to take in cargo that I walk upon the banks. So that into Germany I have only as yet made the merest swallow flights, returning to the safe shelter of England for a ship is always English. At least that is the impression that I have, though this particular ship happens to be Dutch. Still, it isn't German, and its cooking is as bad as anything that could be found in England. In the circumstances of my adieu to my native land, this fact seems to be consoling and protective. At Osmanshausen there are a great many hotels. The sun is setting. The vineyards up the steep hills are blood-red, and when I step off, here it is all over with me. For here upon the bank there stand the nearest relations of all. They are going to induct me into the sacred and mysterious rites of German citizenship, and don't they do it. For they conduct the literary lady to the literary hotel, advertised as such. Before I may sit down to eat Rhine salmon and drink Rhine wine, I must visit the Freilichrat room. An omission on my part to gaze, fasting, on the apartment where one of German's lyric poets stayed several summers and drank, let us say, nine hundred bottles of Rhine wine, will be a sign of the grossest disrespect, unpermissible even in a tired alien. What poet in England could draw us up to his room before we have washed the stain of travel from us, and before we have dined? But this 
is the bank of the Rhine. This is Germany. And as I sit upon the hotel balcony and look out at the silver expanse of the stream, the lights upon the farther bank, the deep purple of the high woods, and the thin pairing of a new moon that seems, since I did not happen to see it first through the glass of any window, to offer me the good luck of Germany. Suddenly it comes into my head that when, after a little travelling across this broad land, I again set foot upon the gangway of a ship, and when I am asked, are you a British subject, I shall have to answer, no, because I have tasted of these grapes, drunk of this wine, and heard the flow of this, of the, river. When I return to my native land, I shall be an, I trust, desirable alien. End of chapter 1